Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Wicker Man from 1973. Adapted by Anthony Schaefer from a novel called Ritual by David Pinner and directed by Robin Hardy. Pinner isn't credited in the film for his work, which is at least a little ironic as Ritual began as a treatment for a movie that the author, who was also an actor on the British stage, hoped to get made into a movie by director Michael Winner. When that didn't happen, he wrote it up as a novel, which Schaefer read while he was looking for a project to do with actor Sir Christopher Lee. Now, we have talked about Lee in this period with 1972's Horror Express, and one of the things mentioned in that episode is that it was very much in Lee's wheelhouse. He was famously known for doing hammer horror-style movies, appearing either as a patriarchal British authority figure or as a suave and menacing villain. And he was even more particularly known for two specific roles, Dracula and Fu Manchu. This was, sadly, an era in which Yellowface was still considered acceptable. Lee wanted to find roles that gave him more to do than just bare his fangs or stroke his mustache, though, and he decided to involve himself more directly in the production of his own movies in order to reshape his image. He and Schaefer both liked the idea of a modern Christian entering a remote community that hadn't changed its ancient pagan rites, and Schaefer in particular was obsessed with a passage in Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War where he described giant wicker effigies in which men were imprisoned and set on fire. Um, spoilers. As the central image of the film, little caring that Caesar's account is the only historical record of this practice and it's widely considered to be apocryphal. Schaefer then went out and researched pagan practices, relying heavily on James Fraser's The Golden Bough, which is a bit like saying that you researched your upcoming movie about astronauts by watching Star Wars. Because let's not bury the lead here. The Wicker Man is deeply, insultingly inaccurate when it comes to representing the modern practice of worship in the pagan faiths. I have some close knowledge of this. My wife is pagan, and while we don't have time to get into the full details of a very long conversation about religion, the idea that there's a single paganism is as inaccurate as saying there's just one form of Christianity. And I don't recognize literally anything about the religious elements of this movie as real. In much the same way that lawyers watch legal dramas and see obnoxiously false simulacra of their daily life in the courtroom, or doctors watch medical dramas with a mix of irritation and amusement, I see a lot of culturally appropriative nonsense taken third-hand from a man who made up most of his statements about ancient ritual practice out of whole cloth, and then written to be more dramatic anyway. There's nothing about the Wicker Man that's true, and it's very frustrating that a lot of people who have never met a practicing pagan, or at least who haven't had any discussions about religion with them, come away from this movie thinking that this is just an extreme depiction of a real faith, instead of what it actually is, a whole bunch of utter nonsense. Now, that doesn't mean this movie fails, by the way, because the whole point is that this supposedly ancient pagan faith was deliberately shaped by someone using the inhabitants of Summer Isle as a source of cheap labor, and they're not necessarily supposed to represent paganism so much as insularity and epistemic closure in the face of outsiders and the practice of the old ways, despite the attempts by civilization to imprint a new religious order over their ancient rituals. 
But it's kind of a shame that this right here is the predominant cultural depiction of the pagan faith, and it's a bunch of weirdos who have tons of sex and practice human sacrifice. So let's get that out of the way from the very beginning. If you think this is paganism, please open up your brain, do real research, and treat this movie exactly as what it is, a group of middle-aged white dudes with fevered imaginations writing up a story based on the work of another middle-aged white dude with a fevered imagination. Thank you. Lecture over. Back to the story. Schaefer and Lee found a director, Robin Hardy, who'd done commercials and informational films and who was looking to break into features, and they in turn found a studio, British Lion Films. Sadly, British Lion was in deep financial trouble, like pretty much the entire British film industry at the time. This is something I talked a little about in my episode on the Stone Tape, where the whole British economy was in crisis in the 1970s, with some years seeing double-digit inflation. And that hits the film industry particularly hard, because it is such a risky business, with hits and flops. British Lion had just been bought by a wealthy businessman named John Bentley, but he immediately ran into union trouble and had to rush a film into production just to ensure that they would keep working for him. That's significant because it meant that The Wicker Man, a film set around the 1st of May and themed around the lush abundance of nature in the growing season, began filming in October 1972 in freezing Scotland. Actors reportedly had to suck on ice cubes between takes so their breath wouldn't show. In addition to Lee, who plays the witty and sardonic Lord Summer Isle and who waved his fee to appear in this movie, that's something I don't actually agree with as it does set a precedent for underpaying performers for their labor, but it's water under the bridge now, the production found Edward Woodward to play Sergeant Howie. Woodward was Schaefer's first choice, but there were plenty of other candidates, including Michael York, David Hemmings, and Peter Cushing, which would have drastically changed the tone of the film, I think, due to his age. Woodward had already made a name for himself in television, coming to this film directly from his starring turn in the TV series Callan about a British spy, but this would become one of his signature roles alongside the American TV series The Equalizer. His much later appearance in Hot Fuzz is very much a nod to this film. Other prominent figures in the film include Diane Salento as Miss Rose, the village schoolteacher. Salento was appearing toward the end of a lengthy career in film and television that included The Agony and the Ecstasy and an adaptation of Dial M for Murder. Britt Eklund as Willow, the landlord's daughter. Eklund had a long stretch of appearances in British sex comedies and action flicks, including the original Git Carter and The Man with the Golden Gun, before settling into a later career of celebrity cameos. Lindsay Kemp as the landlord, Alder McGregor. He's probably most famous for this role, although he's also in the video for David Bowie's song John I'm Only Dancing. Irene Sunter as Mae Morrison, and Geraldine Cowper as her daughter Rowan, whose absence from the narrative is also its cause. Both women did quite a bit of television work over the years, with Cowper in particular getting a role as Rosie on EastEnders that lasted almost 200 episodes. Ingrid Pitt as the librarian, she was in Countess Dracula and the Vampire Lovers, as well as making an appearance on Doctor Who, and I'm as surprised as you are that it's taken this long to get a Doctor Who mention in among this cast. Russell Waters, appropriately enough, as the Harbormaster, he's a longtime character actor with credits going back to the 1930s, and Aubrey Morris as the Gravedigger. Morris is one of those very famous faces you'll probably recognize even if you don't know the name. He's popped up in everything from Babylon 5 to Alien Nation to Tales from the Crypt to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to Space 1999 to Cat Weasel, and he's especially familiar to me because he's in Life Force, which we covered only a few episodes ago. And with that, let's dig into the movie. 
It begins with a caption card thanking the Lord Summer Isle and the people of his island off the west coast of Scotland, supposedly in the Hebrides, quote, for his privileged insight into their religious practices and for their generous cooperation in the making of this film, unquote. This is, of course, a playful attempt to suggest that what we're seeing is based on true events, a fun little conceit in a lot of horror movies that lends verisimilitude to the tale and immerses you a little bit further in events. It's the sort of thing Dan O'Bannon was parodying in Night of the Living Dead, but I think its most famous unironic use to modern audiences is at the beginning of Paranormal Activity. We then get a lengthy sequence of aerial footage under the opening credits, with Edward Woodward Sergeant Howie flying a seaplane from the mainland out to Summer Isle as various folk songs play in the background. Now, this wasn't the original beginning Hardy had planned for the film. Famously, the studio considered this to be an unsellable bomb when they saw the bleak ending Hardy shot. I don't know how it could have surprised them, given that they read the script and signed the checks to have a 20-foot-high wicker effigy built, but sometimes things look very different on screen than they do on paper. And they immediately hacked about 10 minutes of footage out of it so that they could put it on as the B-picture behind Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. The outtakes were sent to a film vault for storage, but unfortunately they arrived shortly before a massive purge of older material and wound up on the wrong pile. As such, the only versions that survive of the complete film are poor-quality temp tracks on video. Christopher Lee spent the rest of his life infuriated over the loss of one of his monologues about the island's special apples, which provides some context for the film's ending that's now sadly lost. That apple scene in this opening formed the majority of the trims. Originally, this was to begin on the mainland, with Howie demonstrating his priggish and authoritarian nature by breaking up a performance at a bar and citing them for a lack of music license, and a couple of the locals commenting that they're glad to see the back of him when he flies off in his seaplane. I don't think we really need to do any more than the movie already does to make Howie look like an ass, but perhaps I'd feel differently if the footage was available. Howie flies in over a lush green island full of flowering trees, actually South Africa, as it was impossible to make Scotland in October look lush, green, or flowering. It's basically the exact opposite of the problem the Halloween movies had. And it includes more than a few palm trees, which I do kind of feel is taking it a bit far. He lands in the harbor, drops anchor, then demands a dinghy to bring him to land. When he's informed that Summer Isle is private property, he immediately pulls rank and tells them that he's a police officer on a criminal investigation, and already there's a lot going on here that we should probably talk about. Because this is, as I said earlier, about that clash between the rigid insularity of the British countryside and the inserted authority of the British government. Britain's pretty proud of the fact that it drove off the Romans due mostly to their sheer stubbornness, combined, if we're being strictly honest, with an overextension of the Roman Empire and a lack of institutional will to maintain their hold on the islands, and that they haven't been conquered since 1066, so there's an instinctive and inherited distrust of anyone coming in as an outsider and telling people what to do. This is particularly notable in rural communities, where even the poorest of families can trace their ancestry back thousands of years, and the worst person in town is better than the best person of the next town over. And because these various communities are so isolated, either by circumstance or by choice, or in the case of Summer Isle, both, they tend to have a sort of mimetic drift to their traditions and cultural practices. Just like isolated populations wind up with a disproportionate representation of a few genes in their original gene pool, these little towns wind up without anyone but each other to look at the everyday things they do and say, hmm, is that really normal? 
As a result, a lot of quirks and eccentricities develop, which, when combined with the insularity and hostility to outsiders, can make people who are coming in from elsewhere feel highly uncomfortable and unwelcome. This leads to a whole subgenre of horror known as folk horror, of which The Wicker Man is practically emblematic. They all feature city dwellers venturing very far out into an isolated community with eccentric superstitions and cultural practices that feel hostile to outsiders, and usually they're either more true than a modern and refined protagonist, and representative of the audience, might expect, or they go to an extreme that endangers the protagonist's life. Folk horror exists everywhere, there's a strong dichotomy between the urban and the rural, and it can include things like Children of the Corn, Midsommar, and the original pilot for Canine and Company. Oh, come on, watch it and tell me I'm wrong. So what we have here is the very model of folk horror. Howie is coming in as a literal symbol of urban authority, a policeman, and he either does not realize or is determined to ignore the very real and dangerous fact that all his power derives ultimately from a threat of force that he cannot back up in this situation. He has no backup, no way to obtain it in a timely manner, and he's deeply outnumbered by the locals. The whole movie will be his slow, gradual, devastating acceptance of that fact. When Howie gets onto the pier, he explains to the gathered spectators that he has received a letter addressed to him personally, indicating that a 12-year-old girl, Rowan Morrison, has vanished. He produces the photo that was included in the letter, but none of the seven men he shows it to recognize the girl, and they insist they don't even have any Morrisons in their town. But when Howie reads from the letter, which describes Rowan as the daughter of May Morrison, they theatrically recollect the woman in question as the operator of the post office slash candy store, but insists she has no daughter named Rowan. As an aside, this does not seem like a community that can support a candy store. I don't quite understand that bit, but the candy looks delicious, so whatever. It is blatantly obvious, both to Howie and the audience, that all of the men are lying. Which puts this into another genre that was having something of a golden age in the 1970s, the conspiracy thriller. Simply put, the conspiracy thriller applies to any number of stories where the protagonist is, either through chance or mishap, or due to some arcane significance that they're entirely unaware of, placed squarely in the crosshairs of a nefarious conspiracy that they then have to unravel in order to escape death or a fate worse than death. One of the frequent features of this subgenre is the elaborate, almost absurd ubiquitousness of the conspiracy. Literally everyone and anyone in the plot will turn out to be an agent of the sinister group opposing the protagonist, and their ability to arrange their desired outcome is almost all-encompassing, with the singular exception of the main character and their determination to uncover the truth at all costs. Paranoia in this genre is virtually an omnipresent feature, but if anything, it's an inadequate response to the sheer size of the forces arrayed against the hero. These stories were incredibly popular in the 70s when the roiling Watergate scandal revealed that actual conspiracies really were brewing at the very heart of the American government. The conversation is a letter-perfect conspiracy thriller inspired by Watergate. But they faded as late, as it's become a lot less fun to think about people who tell us that everything we know is wrong and there's a secret cabal out there threatening to destroy our way of life. There's a frequent overlap with psychological horror in this genre, with protagonists being forced to question their own sanity in the face of so much looming paranoia, but that's not going to be the case here. Honestly, it seems like the villagers aren't even trying to hide their dark secret especially hard. That's foreshadowing, but until you know what's going on with this film, it seems like a sloppy filmmaker signposting things for an inattentive audience. 
Howie goes to the post office and meets May Morrison, who is a polite and cheerful woman who's happy to show off her handmade candy. Again, who does she sell it to? They don't have tourists on Summer Isle. And she tells him that she has only one daughter, seven-year-old Myrtle. Myrtle is painting in the living room, but when May steps away, the young girl readily admits that of course she has a sister named Rowan. But she's been turned into a hare now and doesn't live with them anymore. And this is precisely the kind of thing I'm talking about with conspiracy thrillers, the absurd and all-encompassing reach of the sinister scheme. Because, while I do like to reveal the shocks in chronological order when I can, there's no real way to talk about this movie without looking at events in light of the big twist. Rowan is alive and well, and the conspiracy surrounding her mysterious death is entirely faked in order to draw Howie to the island. So when Myrtle tells Howie that her sister has become a hare now, which we'll come to find out is a common euphemism in Summer Isle for dead, she's either lying or may lied to her to get her to come along with the wider scope of the story Howie's being fed. Which is in turn being covered up by the lie that she never existed in the first place, a lie that people are expected to keep up with very badly in order to keep Howie's suspicions churning and keep him there on the island until they need him. Obviously, this is kind of nonsensical when you really think about it. Yes, island communities tend to be very insular, they tend to be hostile to outsiders, they tend to keep their secrets, but to expect each and every one of them to agree to this massive, layered, and calculated deception to lure someone in and kill them in an act of human sacrifice? Again, spoilers, but you can't really talk about this movie without talking about what's going on behind the story we see, and to carry it all off without a hitch just doesn't make sense. Especially when you remember that according to the revelations at the ending, this is their first time trying it. These folks went from zero to let's find a cop on the mainland, secretly research his beliefs and sexual activities to confirm that he's the Christian virgin we need for our ritual, lure him to the island, sabotage his plane, and finally burn him alive in an elaborate pyre while we all sing along to this death with cheerful smiles on our faces in the span of one year. But the genre of conspiracy thriller doesn't follow real-world logic. It's a world of validated paranoia, where the worst-case scenario is always true, and everyone who tells you you're wrong is secretly in on it. Now in the real world, where that's the kind of behavior that leads you to shoot up pizza parlors looking for the secret basement where Hillary Clinton keeps her trafficked sex slaves, that's very much a bad thing, and I think it's going to be a long while before we see the resurgence of the conspiracy thriller in modern cinema, because a whole generation now wants to tell the exact opposite kind of story. But in the movies, we're allowed to give our fears free reign for a while, precisely because we can then walk out of the theater, put them back in the box, and feel a little catharsis about this. Having had his own particular conspiracy theory vindicated, Howie decides to extend his stay on Summer Isle and goes to the Green Man Inn to get some supper and book a room. The Green Man is a common folkloric symbol, especially in Britain, and takes the form of a person or a human face made out of foliage as a symbol of rebirth and restoration. There are plenty of inns and taverns in the UK called the Green Man, just as there are plenty of pagan symbols and traditions that never truly left England, despite the best efforts of generations of Christian priests and secular authorities, and although it seems ominous here, it wouldn't have been out of place to Howie. But that's a lot of this film in a nutshell. Howie doesn't even realize how many of the symbols he sees every day have their roots in a pagan culture that predates the forced conversion of the island to Christianity, symbols that were co-opted by the more modern faith rather than replaced by it. 
Inside, there's an atmosphere of body fun, but it's not clear just how body it is until the landlord introduces his daughter Willow, and the entire tavern joins in for a rousing song about how extremely open she is to having sex with any man who asks her. It's choreographed, it's synchronized, and it's fully diegetic, which comes as a shock to anyone watching this film for the first time because although we've had a constant background of folk music the entire movie, some of it very body already, the song Corn Rigs is based on a poem by famous Scottish poet Robert Burns and is all about two people having sex in a field, this is the first time the characters have burst into song. And not to spoil, but there will be a lot of singing from now on. Howie's not so much shocked by the full-on musical production he gets treated to as by the content and the reaction. Willow's genuinely into being sung about in very frank and sexual terms, and both she and her father seem to very much agree with the descriptions of her. It's rather a lot to take in, but because Howie is a man who's not accustomed to interrogating his own emotions, he decides to interrupt not to tell them that he's uncomfortable with the blatant imagery of the song or with the fetishization of a person who's right there in front of them as a purely sexual object, but to once again mention that Rowan Morrison is missing and he's come looking for her. Nobody's seen her, though, and nobody knows about her, although the landlord, who makes looking shifty into an art form with constant crooked smiles and raised eyebrows and knowing looks, tells Howie that a missing photo of last year's May Queen simply fell off the wall and broke. Over dinner, Howie discusses with Willow the sorry state of the meal, everything's out of a can, including the fruit and vegetables, which should be local produce but she's seemingly more interested in flirting with him than in talking about the state of the veggies. Incidentally, Britt Eklund is clearly dubbed in this and in all her other scenes, supposedly because the producers were unhappy with the quality of her faux Scottish accent. Eklund didn't like working on this production and tells a number of stories about the difficult conditions and the bleak shooting locations and the unethical behavior of the production team, many of which are contradicted by other actors. Then again, Lee tells a number of stories about studio executives that they vehemently deny as well, so it may just be one of those productions where everyone was having a bad time. Howie goes for a walk after dinner and runs into a number of couples openly having sex in public, which is presented as some kind of pagan practice even though I can absolutely assure you it very much is not. I'm certainly not going to present the faith as every bit as hung up about sex as Christianity because I'm not actually sure that's possible. But the tales of pagans as wild and debauched and screwing all the time are pretty much entirely the creation of deeply repressed Christian writers who describe the perverse sexual practices of other religions with a peculiar mix of wistful longing and sneering contempt. It is fully wish fulfillment for men who want to be having a lot more sex than they are. And here it mainly serves to emphasize how tightly wound Howie is about sex, something that will also factor heavily into the next scene as well. Because when Howie returns to the inn, upset and uncomfortable, and probably more than a little aroused even though he tries to pretend he isn't, he goes to bed, we get a few flashbacks to him in church that were originally placed at the beginning of the movie, and a naked willow sings to him through the wall of the room next door and does a sexy dance for it. It's a cleverly edited sequence that suggests a far more overt temptation than we actually see. If she just walked naked into his room and he said no thank you, it would have felt more tense than erotic. But as it is, Eklund is allowed to do a full-on seduction scene while Howie struggles hard to resist her charms, despite the fact that reasonably speaking he shouldn't know what's going on on the other side of the wall. 
It should be noted, by the way, that while Eklund was willing to appear naked from the waist up, a body double was used for any shots below the waist, and she was very unhappy about it. In general, I don't like the practice of using a body double to get around a star unwilling to shoot nudity, because it's not like the audience knows it's not them. In fact, that's the whole point. They're trying to create the seamless illusion of the character on screen taking their clothes off, and if we spotted that it was a different actor entirely, we'd be taken out of the scene. So a body double really gives the performer the worst of both worlds. They have to look at a body they know isn't theirs. Eklund was quite critical of the physical appearance of her double, but everyone else thinks it is. Incidentally, Eklund was dating musician Rod Stewart at the time. He was so upset that he tried unsuccessfully to have the film banned in Britain. The next day, Willow wakes Howie, asking in the process why he didn't come to her room for some consequence-free sex, and finding his explanation that he's engaged and doesn't believe in sex before marriage to be quite amusing, and he continues his investigation. He goes to the village school, where a bunch of boys are doing a maypole dance, another ancient pagan tradition that's persisted to the present day despite numerous attempts to stamp it out, to a lovely song about the cycle of life and death that's kind of the signature tune of the whole movie. It gets used prominently in the trailer. Inside, Miss Rose is teaching the girls about the phallic symbolism of the maypole, and while Howie is clearly infuriated by the frank discussion of sexuality with children, he doesn't really have any authority to do anything more than investigate Rowan's disappearance. So he leans hard on that, because cops don't know any other way of dealing with the situation beyond threat and bluster. This is another really big theme in the movie. Howie is, despite being the protagonist, not at all a hero. He's an authoritarian asshole who hates the whole notion of a progressive society, although it's presented as a pagan belief the openness about sex in Summer Isle really belongs to the hippie movement of the late 60s slash early 70s and the counterculture that caused so many clashes in this era, and it would have been anathema to a conservative Catholic policeman in 1972 when this movie was set. His crusade against the conspiracy behind Rowan Morrison's death is, in fact, little more than a thinly-veiled emotional reaction to a group of people with different beliefs than his own, and Woodward really gives a lot of intensity to all of his interactions with the locals in a way that tells you he just wants to smash and crush and destroy them for thinking the way they do. But he can't justify that within his code of ethics, so Rowan becomes increasingly important to him as a shield to prevent examination of his motives as he looks for a way to bring all of Summer Isle down. And it is all of Summer Isle that's stymieing him. Every single girl in the class, along with the teacher, says they don't know any Rowan Morrison, even though there's a conspicuously empty desk and the class register for the previous year lists her name. Well, not quite empty. There's a beetle inside, tied to a nail by a single thread and unable to do anything but wind itself tighter and tighter into its own trap, just in case the theme of the movie wasn't obvious enough yet. Howie calls them all despicable little liars when he finds the truth, hissing the words with naked contempt, and finally Miss Rose admits there was a Rowan Morrison. Emphasis on was. She's been reincarnated, transmuted into a new form, which is the closest Miss Rose will get to saying that she's dead. None of this is pagan tradition, by the way. This is all just Schaefer freelancing. Please do not use this as a substitute for actually learning something about a real and living faith. The appropriation of paganism, like the appropriation of voodoo, is a lingering remnant of the Christian insistence on treating all other religions like scary satanic boogeymen rather than dealing with them on their own terms. 
Miss Rose tells Howie that Rowan's body is buried in the local cemetery, which is attached to the remnants of the local church that have now crumbled and fallen in on themselves. Howie goes to see it and finds pagan offerings there, a woman conducting a fertility ritual, and tombstones saying things like, protected by the ejaculation of serpents. And have I mentioned that the supposedly meticulous research they did on pagan religion is comically nonsensical? Every grave is marked by a tree, and that allows him to find Rowan's unmarked grave. The gravedigger tells him they just haven't had a chance to put in the headstone yet, but again, nobody lies very believably in this movie. And it's clear that Howie is far more upset about the indifference to his faith and the pagan traditions he sees like tying the umbilical cord to the tree growing over the body, again, not a real thing, than he is about finding Rowan dead, even though he'll use the latter as the excuse to punish the former. Howie goes back to May and Myrtle, the latter of whom is putting a toad in her mouth to treat a sore throat, and let me assure you that this does not happen in pagan households even a little, and he decides that maybe he's not going to get much help out of them under the circumstances. He instead goes to the town registrar, where the local librarian eats peaches from a can and doesn't want to give him the death registry for the village at first. When he insists, though, she relents and he discovers there's no record of Rowan's death, even though her body is in the cemetery. And that means there's no listed cause of death either, which could conceal any one of a number of sins. As a last resort, he goes to the local chemist, who takes the photos of the Harvest Festivals, but he claims he doesn't keep copies and he's still insisting he's not entirely sure the girl in the photo even is Rowan. You have to admire his commitment to the bit. With no other options, Howie goes to Lord Summer Isle himself to get permission to exhume the body. On the estate, a number of naked young women are participating in a fertility ritual at a stone circle where they leap over a fire in order to get themselves pregnant, and we finally get our appearance of Christopher Lee in this movie. And damn, does he not disappoint. You can easily see why he was craving this role so badly he did the work for free. He plays the lord of the manor like one of the gadfly atheists who joins the Church of Satan specifically to piss off evangelical Christians, pointing out their hypocrisies and contradictions and running rings around their religious ignorance. He tells Howie that the women are hoping to conceive parthenogenically, and when Howie gets predictably furious at this pagan nonsense, Lord Summerisle is happy to point out that Jesus Christ himself was famously a virgin birth. As Summer Isle needles Howie, we get a little of the history of the island. It began as a fishing community, eking out a precarious existence on the barren shores, until the original Lord Summer Isle came along with special strains of fruit and vegetable that would grow in the volcanic soil. There hasn't been an active volcano in Scotland in 55 million years, but maybe nobody's tried agriculture since then? In order to cement his authority, Summer Isle claimed that the strains of fruit were endowed not with scientific brilliance, but with the power of the pagan gods that the islanders supposedly no longer worshipped. Wink, wink. And when they grew in supposedly barren soil, his doctrine became law and the priests fled to more receptive congregations elsewhere. Ever since, the old beliefs have returned, the peculiarly Summer Isle sect of paganism has dominated the island completely, aided by the plenty and abundance his beneficence provided, and the Christian god, in their philosophy, died. In the longer version of this sequence, the emblematic fruit of this new crop and new religion was the apple. Worth mentioning for later, as I say, because they do make a lot of references to apples at the end, and it's really weird if you don't know that. 
Howie asks for permission to exhume Rowan, only to be reminded by Summerisle that he already gave it at the beginning of their conversation and has spent all this time flailing ineffectually at anti-pagan arguments instead of acting on it. Stung, Howie leaves, and he and the gravedigger unbury the coffin only to find inside nothing but a dead hare. Howie returns to Lord Summerisle's manor, where he's singing body songs with Miss Rose, and flings the dead animal at their feet. They're resolutely disinterested in his fury, though, and Howie realizes he's ultimately impotent without the power of his department to back him up. He tells him he's going back to the mainland to go get reinforcements and open up a full inquiry, which he should have realized was a threat that couldn't go unanswered if he was actually right, but by this point he's too invested in the righteousness of his cause to back down from it no matter how smart it is from a practical point of view not to let the people who've already committed murder once know that he plans to turn them in. Seeking one last bit of evidence to prove his case, Howie breaks into the chemists and finds a stash of photos, including the harvest photo from last year. Sure enough, the supply of food is less than a tenth of what it was in previous years, confirming his suspicions that the others chose her as a sacrifice to propitiate the gods in the event of a failed crop. But when he goes to the library to research the ancient practice of human sacrifice, which appears to happen the next day even though we don't see him going to bed, there's some weirdness with time due to the heavy editing involved, this whole sequence was condensed down so it goes night day night day a couple times, how he discovers that these sacrifices happen not at harvest time, but on May Day, which is rapidly approaching. We also get a few details about the ritual, which involves a man dressing up as a centaur, another man dressing up as a woman, and Punch the Fool acting as the king for a day before he's sacrificed to the gods to bring prosperity. Punch is actually not the fool and is not related to any pagan traditions, he's a figure from the Italian theater repurposed into a British puppet, but again, none of this is accurate and you shouldn't take any of it seriously as a depiction of a religion. There's also a group of swordsmen who lock their swords together into a quote-unquote symbol of the sun, actually a star of David, speaking of problematic religious appropriation, and decapitate the sacrificial victim in order to bring about good fortune. Having read all this, Howie realizes that Rowan is still alive but that time is running out. He heads back to his plane, but unsurprisingly it's been sabotaged, and all he can do is try to search the village house by house under his own authority to try to find her. Given the time frame involved and the lack of community support, including from Rowan's own mother who simply tells him to stay out of things that don't concern him, it fails miserably. He does, however, overhear the plans for the Mayday procession, with the landlord acting as punch. The actor does get the unfortunate line, it doth seem to have shrunk in relation to his costume, which is almost impossible not to lisp, and Lord Summerall himself doing the woman part. They're planning to begin the parade at three, and Howie goes back to his room at the inn to rest up in preparation for a daring rescue. After all, the one place he knows they have to bring Rowan is to the sacrificial ground itself. While he sleeps, the landlord and his daughter plant a hand of glory by his bedside. This is traditionally a candle made from the fat of the left hand of a murderer, which will supposedly freeze in place anyone it's shown to, or sometimes will give off light that is only seen by the holder. It's a very vague myth. And indeed, during the search, you do see a body with a severed hand in the local funeral parlor. Here they claim it will make him sleep and miss the ritual, and it's not clear whether they're lying or just mistaken because he pretty much immediately wakes up, knocks it over, and goes to knock the landlord out and steal his punch costume. 
Given the amount of importance they place on it symbolically, you do have to wonder what they would have done if he'd stolen a different mask. But again, real-world logic has very little place in a conspiracy thriller. Everything always works out just as they planned it. The procession then begins, with Howie disguised as Punch and Lord Summerisle berating him for being a lackluster fool. Obviously he knows what's going on, and he's having a little fun now that all of his plans are finally coming to fruition. The parade is tense, as we know that everyone in town is secretly a participant in a dark and murderous ritual, but we don't know that Howie's disguise has already been rumbled. And every time someone does something remotely dangerous, we're on edge in what I think is a genuinely perfect sequence of pure tension. It only gets worse when the swordsmen form their star and everyone puts their head through it in a line as a symbol of their willingness to sacrifice for the community. There's a false scare, as someone wearing a fake head with a fake mask on it is seemingly decapitated, but it's all a game, and for a moment you almost wonder if Howie isn't wrong about this. But after they sacrifice a barrel of beer to the god of the sea, Lord Summerisle tells them it's time for the far darker sacrifice to the goddess of the fields, and Rowan is brought out to the crowd. That's Howie's cue, and he races up to her, knocks down the men guarding her, and unties her before leading her back into the caves on the side of the cliff. She in turn leads him along what she claims is a secret escape route, as the music suddenly becomes 70s cop show groovy for a single sequence, but when they emerge it's to the edge of a high cliff overlooking the sea. Lord Summerisle, the Librarian, Willow, and Miss Rose are all waiting for them alongside Mae Morrison. And when Rowan goes running to Lord Summerisle to embrace him in a joyous hug, Howie finally realizes he's been played. There was never any intention of sacrificing a local. What they needed was a representative of the King's Law, a virgin Christian who came of his own will, whose symbolic power could stop the crops from failing again and give the village a bountiful harvest. The entire village gathers at the top of the hill, blocking his retreat, and although Howie tries to push past them, he's every bit the fool he's dressed as for thinking he can escape. They cut off his costume and anoint him with sacred oils before dressing him in white robes, and although he tries to tell them, I believe in the life eternal as promised by the Lord Jesus Christ, it's once again Lord Summerisle's comeback that everyone remembers. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come, it is time for you to keep your appointment with the wicker man. God, that's just a beautiful moment. I can't do it justice. It's Christopher Lee. He's got that voice. Howie tries to appeal to their reason and compassion, but he doesn't really have any evidence for his claim that killing them won't bring back their precious apples. See, this is where the apples thing really comes back, how he keeps shouting about apples, and it's really not much different from the much lambasted 2006 version and all its talk of honey. And of course, they've got the power of true belief on their side. Even when he says that if the crops fail again, they'll have to sacrifice Lord Summerisle himself to guarantee a good harvest, it's no good. They just don't think that'll happen. They're all true believers to the core, and nothing can shake that epistemic closure they've locked themselves into. All of their sources of information are each other, and they're all reinforcing their shared delusions. They drag Howie up the hill to a 20-foot-tall wicker effigy of a man placed at the top of the ridge. 
how he screams out, Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! in terror, which was apparently an unfeigned reaction by Woodward as he hadn't seen this setup until then, and he's then placed in the torso of the towering construction among a group of animals penned into its arms and legs and chest, one of which apparently pissed on him. The door is locked, and although it doesn't look especially sturdy, wicker is actually pretty tough stuff. They used to use it for armor, in fact. The wicker man is set alight, and yes, Woodward and all those animals were really in it as it was burning, although everyone on the production team insists that the animals were rescued, although, again, Brett Eklund says no they weren't, they let them burn, and how he prays one last time to his god for deliverance of his soul, if not his body, before his resolve collapses into panic and he dies in pain, while the villagers watch and smile and sing, Summer is a-comin' in. And ultimately, that's the enduring image of the movie, the final moment that lingers long after it's over. For all that Howie was an obnoxious, officious prick, he dies awfully in front of a bunch of people celebrating his demise. It's genuinely bleak and horrible and brutal, a real gut punch of a climax that sticks in the mind long after the movie is over. Apparently the producers tried hard to convince Hardy to change it, suggesting a miraculous rainstorm or a last-minute rescue, but he stuck with his guns and I don't think the film would be the masterpiece it is if he didn't. And it is a masterpiece. Despite its inaccurate and culturally insensitive depiction of paganism, despite the fact that the real-world logic of the film collapses like a bad souffle if you think about it too hard, it's just such a perfect nightmare of paranoia and isolation and building tension and utter wrenching terror in that last few moments that you cannot deny its emotional power. This is a movie that everyone wishes they could find a way to make again because it's just that good. There's been one remake, one spiritual sequel called The Wicker Tree, another spiritual sequel that was being planned when Hardy died, and an unproduced sequel where Howie is freed and gains superpowers from God to fight a literal dragon summoned by Lord Summerisle. And certainly by comparison to all that, it stands even more as one of the towering and seminal works of its genre. And will I hang on to this movie? Yes. I'm very grateful to my wife for getting it for me for Christmas, despite her own deep reservations about its depiction of her faith, and I would not want to trust this one to the luck of streaming. It comes and goes from Shudder pretty regularly, but The Wicker Man survived an indifferent release, accidental destruction of several of its component parts, and years of neglect before becoming a classic. And I don't want to risk losing out on it just because somebody else decided to purge it from their library of films. So it stays in my collection from now on. And if you want to talk about pagan appropriation, obnoxious Christians, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I'll admit, I'm tempted to go straight from this into Hot Fuzz just to show how Edgar Wright used the tropes of conspiracy thriller and folk horror to build tension before releasing it in a final genre-switching burst of cathartic violence. But I've got a movie I've been wanting to get to for a while now, an obscure 80s cult classic I've been itching to talk about ever since I picked it up. 
So let's fire up the old black and white TV, tune those clicking dials to the UHF band, and find that classic flick, Zombie Blood Nightmare. Only, that's not what's really playing, is it? That's just the only thing that's around to watch in 1987's film, The Video Dead. See you then. <laughs>